In our preaching this year, we are challenging, we are asking you to invest yourself. Invest of your time, your talent, your treasure in the cause of Christ. In the cause that Christ found worthy to invest himself in, connecting people with God. For the last number of months, we've been talking about investment of life in the things that, that matter. We've said that this year, those who consider that this is their church home would invest in the following ways, that you would find a place to serve faithfully and joyfully, learn how to work together in team, look to find where you fit in service and in ministry. We've asked that you would find one person in your world to serve, someone who needs to be loved, needs to be cared for and helped and given hope and dignity. I want to just say, just take a moment out to say how proud I am of you as I hear stories of the people that you have chosen. I was telling someone about our investment strategy this week and boasting that you haven't chosen people that just that don't just need a little bit of dusting and a little bit of a run over with an iron just to straighten them out, but you have chosen, you've gone out and found people who are so broken that if they don't have a miracle, they, they need a God that's bigger than their problems and bigger than their situation. And I'm so proud of who, who you've chosen and who you've identified with. You've done this so well. But finally, that you would live with enough margin in your life Enough space reserved so that you could give your time, your resource to invest talent and treasure into the assignments that God gives you. That you'd be able to invest into this house, that you would be able to invest into ministries that are worthy of your attention, that you would be able to meet need when it comes across your path. Today, we want to look at what an investor in these human projects looks like. Jesus speaks very plainly, very deliberately about investors. And so I'm asking you to go with me to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus taught principles using illustrated stories or parables. He was, he was creating something brand new and so to show people what it looked like, to illustrate how it worked, he would take a story that would be understandable to the crowd that was listening, and he would use it to illustrate what was going on, what was happening, what he was building. Jesus came to bring heaven to earth. And so he starts this story by saying, I want you to know what heaven's kingdom looks like here where you live. And that's how we get to the story he's about to tell. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 44. Heaven's kingdom, Jesus says, heaven's kingdom realm can be illustrated like this. A, a person discovered that there was a hidden treasure in a field. Upon finding it, he hid it again. Because of uncovering such treasure, he was overjoyed and he sold all that he possessed to buy the entire field just so he could have the treasure. 
So the story has a regular man going from point A to point B. And he cuts across a field that's owned by someone else. And as he, as he travels across that, that piece of property, he, he discovers what is described as a hidden treasure. There are some stories that Jesus tells where he breaks it all down and he says, now listen, there's a seed and a farmer and field and, and this is who the field represents and this is what the seed is and this is who the farmer is. But he doesn't do that in this story. He, he just tells the story, a short one at that, and then he moves on. So in, in, in crossing the field, the, the travelers see something that no one else has ever seen in that field. He discovers a hidden treasure. So me, being a lover of stories, wants to know what he found. It, it, it's not a solid gold pocket watch because you would look around to see if there were people in the area who might have lost a pocket watch. And, and if you see anyone, you would say, if, is this yours? And if you don't see anyone, you'd say, well, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. You know, this is my new pocket watch. Debbie and I were downtown in the, in the core during the Christmas season and and. I picked her up from one store, and we were moving towards the car, and I looked down, and I saw a $20 bill on the ground. And because I watch enough TV, I thought, this is a trick. There's a, there's a camera somewhere. They're going to see what I do. So I picked it up, and I looked around, and I didn't see anybody, and I looked up. I didn't see any cameras, so I kept it. Until yesterday, when a lady flagged me down, tears coming down her face, saying, I'm out of gas and I don't have any money. Do you have anything you could give me? Well, yeah, here's the 20 bucks I found at the core. <laughs> I just transported it for God from one mall to a, to a need. And so that, that's... So, so we know that it wasn't a watch. Two, two things that we assume about the treasure. One is it's been hidden. No one else has seen it. And this, this stranger, this visitor to the property finds what no one else has seen when they've passed by. So, of course, I have to think about this. have to think, what is it that he sees? He's, he's thirsty and he sees a bit of a, 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 of a stream and he bends down and tastes the water and finds out that it's not only cold and wet, but it's the sweetest waters. He's ever tasted. He could bottle this. He could put a fancy name on it and sell it for four fifty a bottle. <laughs> or he, he's walking by and, and minding his own business and the sun hits the ground and he sees a sparkle, a flash of color and, and, and he looks and he digs and he He's found something that could be a diamond mine. A diamond in the rough. And he digs around with his fingers and he thinks, how big is this deposit? In, in my mind, that, that works. There's more than a piece of jewelry, more than a $20 bill. There, there's something bigger, something more grand that, that anyone would ever expect on such an ordinary piece of ground. And, and he recognizes its worth and he's incredibly happy, overjoyed about what he's found in this, in this hidden things. And so he does 
some deliberate things. First, he hides what he finds. He covers it up. It's been there for a long time. Nobody's found it. Hopefully nobody else will. Covers up his discovery and takes the time to execute the plan that he's now formulated in his head. He, he goes home and he starts analyzing what he has and what it's worth. He, he checks with the owner of the property and what would you be willing to sell the entire field for, sir? And, and, and he discovers that if, if you include all that you have... And if you take all the money in the bank, if you sell your house, if you get rid of the car and cash in the RRSPs, and, and, and if you have a garage sale and get rid of all the stuff, if you sell everything, then you can buy the entire field and you can own the treasure yourself. A, a couple of things. It will cost you everything you have to own the treasure in that field. Everything. That's a lot to ask. Everything with all of its intrinsic value, with all of its sentimental attachment, with all that it represents of your history and the efforts that you've made in life to this point, it has to be sold and you can have to let go of it so that you can go in a brand new direction. You have to figure out, is it worth letting go of all of this so that you can have that? The second thing to notice, the purchase plan is set up in such a way that you get the treasure, but in getting the treasure, you get the field as well. As the man knows, the property has trespassers. He's one of them. And he's going to have to keep people out, and so he's going to need to build a fence. And then there's, there's property taxes, and there's insurance, and the possibility of having to get a, a security firm to stand on guard during the night, every night. You just wanted the treasure, but you had to buy the land. You had to inherit all of the troubles, all of the difficulties, all of the extra responsibilities that are included with land as well. So 31 years ago, just last month, 31 years ago, Debbie finds this amazing treasure. <laughs> and she decides she wants it. And, and who can blame her, really? She wants to claim it as her own, and she asks me to marry her. In the deal, though, she doesn't just get me, but she has to take on my whole rowdy, opinionated, strong-willed, outspoken clan. Five siblings and their spouses, a set of parents, unnumbered cousins and uncles and aunts and nephews that keep increasing in number, family traditions that she doesn't particularly care for eating smelly fish at Christmas. In order to claim the treasure, she has to own the field and all that came with it. Does that make sense to you? 
The story that Jesus tells is that the investor recognized the value. Knew that what he had, as nice and as valuable as it was, wasn't anything near the value of what he could have if he bought the field. So, he goes out and he sells everything so that he could buy the entire field just so he could have the treasure. So it's a short story. It's full of information in just a few words. But what does it mean? What is the picture that he's trying to paint for us? What's the point that he's attempting to clarify about what heaven looks like here on earth? The answer comes in yet another short, pithy story. The verse that follows. Matthew chapter 13, verse 45. Heaven's kingdom realm is also like a jewel merchant in search of rare pearls. When he discovered one very precious and exquisite pearl, he immediately gave up all that he had in exchange for that one pearl. Heaven on earth, Jesus says, looks like this. A traveling Salesman, a traveling merchant comes into contact with a purveyor of fine pearls. The the merchant understands something of, of how pearls are made. They are the result of an irritation in the tender inner workings of an oyster. And the story of how it is made adds value. The the story adds adds worth to the pearl. And the merchant has held, has seen, has bought, has sold a lot of pearls over the course of his career. He has held a lot. However, this pearl is something different. This pearl is something more. This pearl is, is exquisite. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. The size of it, the color, the quality, the feel of it. He knows collectors. He he knows designers who would pay a king's ransom to get their hands on this unique pearl. He knows queens who would want this to be part of their collection of jewelry. The merchant sees the value and without hesitation liquidates all of his inventory, sells anything and everything that he has in order that he might possess, that he might own the pearl version of the Hope Diamond. He immediately gave up all he had in exchange for that precious, that exquisite pearl. Similar stories, similar plots. The emphasis is on the investor. Some things that I want you to be aware of of investors. Investors, ones who know what they're doing, recognize value when they see it. Other people pass it by. Don't pay any attention to it. Don't don't give it a second thought. But an investor knows true value when he sees it. 
In both these cases, others had not noticed the value, had, had, had been interested or not even fascinated by what they saw. They just kept walking by, paid no attention, but the investor knew what it was he was looking at. The investor was willing to let go of everything so that he could possess, he could have, he could hold the treasure, could call it his own, have and hold that, that treasure or that pearl. He, he didn't have to consult the bank. He didn't go to a, to a consultant. He didn't phone his wife and say, hey, listen, babe, I, I found this amazing treasure here and I was wondering if you would be cool with selling the house, the car, most of our clothes and possessions so that we can own own the treasure that I found today. I, I, I say that it, the Bible says he immediately sold everything so that he could own it. My father, part of the field, when I was a child, about four years old, I had one sister at the time, she was two. We've been placed at the table in the kitchen, we looking out the window, waiting for dad to come so we can eat. Dad pulls up and I see the back door open and dad pulls out boxes. And I ask my mom, what's dad doing? He has boxes in my four-year-old voice. My mom goes to the door and says, why do you have boxes in your hand? My dad says, I sold our house today. He doesn't blink. I sold the house today. We have to be out by the end of the month. Where are we going to move? Now, keep in mind that at this stage in the story, my dad is a produce manager at a grocery store. Where are we going to move, my mom says. He said, I sold everything that we have so that I could buy a motel on the outskirts of town. In fact, it was not 500 feet from where I stand right now. Of course, all the questions that are rushing, what do we know about running a motel? Why wouldn't we have talked about this? But he saw treasure... He sold what he had so that he could own it. Now, if you're in my marriage premarital counseling, I just need you to know that's not a good idea. You, you should talk. You should talk about what you're doing here, okay? My father didn't avail himself of my services at the time. My mother wasn't convinced of the value of my father's new treasure. Decades later, still, maybe that's the case. However, he sold everything here so that he could own this diamond in the rough there. The investor wasn't frightened, wasn't intimidated by the cost. He was convinced of the value, was willing to make the trade in his heart, in his mind. He knew that the transition might be difficult, it might be costly, but the benefits outweighed by far the monetary sacrifice. And finally, the investor was totally invested. There wasn't a plan B. 
He had sold everything. If the treasure was lost, if the treasure was stolen, there was no other plan to lean back on. There was no other scheme. He was all in. And because the word immediately is used, we know that he didn't ponder, he didn't second guess, he didn't kick it around for a long time. He just up and sold all so that he could own the treasure. By now you're starting to see how this is going to line up. By, by, by now you're seeing the illustration come to life. The investor, of course, in this story is Jesus. The, the, the treasure is you. The treasure is me. Something is just so unbelievably beautiful about what's happening here. Paul writes to the Philippians, though he was God, he did not think of, of equality with God as something to cling to, something to hold on to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He, he took the humble position of a slave and he was born a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. And he died a criminal's death on the cross. He let go of everything that he had so that he could own, possess, have the treasure. You're the treasure. He saw the value in us and he gave up everything, adopted the position of a slave, even though he was king of kings and lord of lords. In, in, instead of glory, he laid it all aside, died a criminal's death so he could possess the treasure that is you. He, he saw your value, was, was willing to give it all up. Whatever it took to connect with you, with me, was, is, always all in for us. Everything that he has is yours. Everything that he does, you have access to. He's all in. The field you were found in, the, the baggage that you bring, the history that you wear, the problems that haunt you, the, the people that accompany you, he picks up all of that too. It's part of the package. And he isn't angry about that. He isn't disappointed. He isn't hoping that you can clean up your act and get, your, get yourself to treasure status. He, he loves you just as you are. And He's all in and completely committed to you, completely committed to us, to me, completely committed to us. That's, that's a wonderful part of the story. We could just go home with that in our hearts and think that's, that's fabulous, that's good news. I can live on that for a week. It's such an incredible declaration of who we are and, and what he sees in us, even if we don't see it in ourselves. But Paul writes in Philippians 2, that piece that I wrote, uh, read about just a moment ago, he, he says that who Jesus is, that's what Jesus did. But here's the kicker, Philippians 2 verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. 
even as he invested in you, you have to invest in others. This same attitude, this same part of the family business has now fallen to me, has fallen to you. You must realize that your call, your place, is to be an investor in people, to to give what you have, to do what is required, to invest in the hidden value of broken, desperate people. To see value where no one else recognizes value, to help, to serve, to, to, to love, to encourage, whatever it takes to get to the treasure. It, it, it isn't an option for, for people who have committed themselves to Christ. Paul says, you must have this attitude. You are to be an investor in human treasure. The market in our city over these last several months and now into years has been pretty interesting. It's had its changes, its challenges in these last several months. Investment has been stormy at best and and risky. In, In that no one knows where the absolutes are anymore. Will there or won't there be a pipeline? If so, when? What are we going to do with oil and gas anyway? How long is it around for? Everything seems to be in flux. But I want to talk to you as investors in human life today. There is nothing more risky than investing yourself and people. Nothing. Jesus decided to invest himself, decided to love, decided to pour himself out while we were still sinners and still could do whatever we wanted. Tremendous risk. Look at the example of Jesus. He he comes comes as a man of peace. He comes as, as a savior to the world, and there are constant assassination tr- attempts on his life. He, he's rejected by the mainstream. He's forsaken when he needs his closest companions the most. They, they flee. He's lied about. He's slandered. They put words in his mouth. Eventually, they kill him. Then he sends this hallmark moment to you and to me and says, if they did it to me, count on them doing it to you. Still, he says, be an investor in the cause. Adopt the same attitude that I have. I want to take you from where we are right now in this year 2019 to an unknown moment that's in the future. I don't know the time nor the hour, the date, but a moment that will affect, a moment that will occur for all of us. Our life here on the planet has ended. 
And we stand now before Jesus in front of a host, but almost as though it's only him and I, only him and you. I'm not sure how it will look like, what it will look like or how it will work, but it's talked about as being both a moment of revelation and reward. Everyone will stand before God to give an account for who they were, what they did, how they carried out their mission, carried out their investment. I think about this a lot, and I have pictures in my mind, and they're just my pictures. They're not, they're not God pictures. They're just how I try to wrap my mind around it. I think sometimes that maybe there will be double screens in front of us, and one will play what could have been if we had have been fully obedient to Christ, and then the reality, and we see where they overlap and where there's some missing. But the picture that Paul gives to the Corinthians is even more intense, even more vivid. He says that everything that we have done and everything that we have built and everything that we accomplished is put to a pressure test. Listen as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13 out of the Passion Translation. The quality of materials used by anyone building on this foundation will soon be made apparent. Whether it's been built with gold, silver, and costly stones, or wood, hay, and straw, their work will become suddenly evident for the day, the, the analysis being carried out will make it clear because it will be revealed by blazing fire. And the fire will test and prove the workmanship of each builder. I know that you'd hoped for better out of me, but I am what I am. You get what you get. I can't help when I read this of thinking of the three little pigs. <laughs> First one just put a shed together, slapped it together with some stick and straw, and the wolf huffed and puffed and blew the thing to smithereens. And the second pig didn't do much better, but the third pig built a house. He built that thing. And the wolf huffed and puffed and nothing happened. They were safe. And Paul says, we're standing in front of God and, and God doesn't huff and puff. He just says, do the test. The results of our life are tested by fire. The things that had value, the things that made a difference, the places where we obeyed, where, where, where we stayed on mission, they come out of the fire untouched. They stand stable. 
They, they are things of value and they withstand the scrutiny of God, the, the fluff, the, the filler, the, the stuff that never made a difference. It disappears. It goes up in smoke and the, and the measurement, the reward is based on what is left, what stands after the test. That, that causes me to, to think long and hard about what I fill my life with, what I fill my time with. But I, I need to back up just for a moment and tell you that I'm not preaching from a place of being an expert in this. I'm, I'm just like you. I, I struggle doing the right things sometimes. I, I want to do the easy things. It, it, it causes me to think, and, and, and I just need you to know that, that God doesn't have a horrible life plan for you. He, he doesn't see you working at things you hate 24-7, 365. Please, please don't think that it means that, that you'll be miserable, that, that, that he, the, the, the more you hate life, the better, the holier you are. That's, that's not what he's saying here. He, he says he comes that, he might, that you might have the fullest life ever and that you might serve the Lord with gladness and incredible joy. But, but not everyone gets the value that he sees. Not everybody invests in the things that count. It hurts my heart when I hear people in general say, but specifically when I hear Christians say, oh, I don't like that kind of person. I don't care for that particular group of individuals. I don't believe in that lifestyle, and so I don't value those who live it. It doesn't matter much to me if they're talking about ethnicity, morality, history, or profession. I have that kind of people that they are talking about here in my church, in my charge, planted in my heart. I pastor many people, people who have never been in this house. I had a person sit in front of me this week and say, I haven't been in the church for years, but I need you to know this is still my church and you're still my pastor. What do I do with that? Thanks for your support. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm the investor. I see the value. I love them. They're in my heart, much as I think God has them in his heart. I carry those people in my heart. I pray over them. I worry for them as a shepherd would for his lost sheep. I, 
I have convicts and addicts, control freaks, egomaniacs, anxiety-ridden, fear-burdened, sin-hardened, dangerous, helpless, deprived, depraved, desperate, depressed, dispossessed, and disconnected people in the congregation of my heart. And I have to love them all. I love them. I pray over them. I serve where I can. I encourage when I'm given the opportunity. I invest when I'm allowed to get close enough. I I don't do it perfectly, and sometimes I even wonder if I do it well enough to be effective. But it's all I know how to do, and I do it in my own clumsy, awkward way. So it hurts me when they are called out as people that are not appreciated, not loved, or served. And so if it does that to me, what does it do to the heart of God? What does it do to God's heart? Had you known it was going to be this heavy this morning, you probably would have stayed home for a second cup of coffee, wouldn't you? I see it happening in my people. I I see you doing it too. Going to people who are alone. Going to people who are broken. One of the key couples here in the church, the person who lives in their basement, died yesterday morning in a fentanyl overdose. A note from one of my people asked me to pray with them for their person who is is more than a handful and is living a dangerous life that... If there isn't a miracle involved, the result will end tragically. Prayed the other day for someone in our church whose whose person is in jail and they're going to visit their person. Help me just to love them. Help me to give them hope. It's who we have been sent to serve. A doctor doesn't come, Jesus said, to help the healthy. He comes to serve the sick, the broken. That's what Jesus said. Investing in people is messy business. You don't get the treasure, you get the whole field. Years ago, I, I love stories and so I love movies, and years ago I saw this movie and I got captured by a scene from it that has worked in me and worked on me for years. The movie is Schindler's List. Oscar Schindler was... An interesting man, he was a German industrialist who was a member of the Nazi party. At one point in time, he was spying in Czechoslovakia for the German government and was arrested for espionage. Something happens to Oscar Schindler. It happens personally, and, and, and he distances himself from the party stand on Jewish people. And he undertakes to save the ones that he's able to save. He decides to do something, and he has to to do what he can to save these Jewish lives, and so he employs them in his factory. He bribes German officials. He gives them luxury gifts so that he can keep his Jewish employees from being deported to death camps. 
In just a moment, we're going to go to a three-minute clip from Schindler's List. Schindler walks out. He's the, he's the main person. Liam Nielsen? Neeson, okay. Liam Neeson walks out. And he's being thanked by 1,100 Jewish people that have been saved by his work. He's overwhelmed because he sees them all together and they're wanting to thank him. They're wanting to express their gratitude. And, and he's overwhelmed by what he sees and what he hears. And, and, and at that moment, he doesn't see what he has done, but he is overcome by the understanding of what he could have done. Listen to the clip. The ring that was given to him, I know you might not have heard it. It had inscribed in Hebrew, he who sends, saves one life saves the world in kind. I could have, I could have saved more. Had, had I sold the car, I, that, that's ten people. I've been a f profoundly affected by, by that scene over the years made me think of the opportunities to serve, to help, to invest. It's made me think, when, when those times are over, will, will I have regrets? I, I don't want to stand in front of Christ and wish that I had been more invested in the mission that he gave me. I want to be known for being all in. I, I, I want to see value in people, the same value that Christ sees in people. I, I want to be a person that lets go of, of, of all of this so that all of these can know, can be connected to the hope that I found. In Christ. I want to be willing to make necessary sacrifices for the maximum return on investment of my life. I, I want to be all in. Totally. Invested. And that means that my focus has to be on the mission that I will be called to make decisions in my life that will require me to say no to things that are both good and meaningful so that I can spend my energies on things that are God and eternal. It, it means that I will struggle with the things that are in, in the field so that I can get to the treasure. Does, does this make sense to you? I need to apologize this morning to you for any time that I or any other minister of the gospel or representative of Christ has, has stood up in front of you and made it sound or outright stated that if you accept God, your, your problems will disappear, life will turn into a garden of delight, and you will be voted the most popular person in your neighborhood. 
I apologize because with our intentions, though our intentions were good, they were not honest. When you accept Christ into your heart, it costs you everything. You enter into the most amazing and healthy relationship ever. It's it's wonderful. However, you also get into the family business. And it's one of the most difficult, hard-fought things that will ever happen in your life. It's a a battle. It's a dogfight. Totally worth it in the end. But there are a lot of struggles in between now and the end. There, there are some sharp disappointments. There are some difficult realizations accompanied by some deep wounds and some lasting scars. And you wonder why I'm not in sales, right? You just, you just wonder, why didn't he go into you know, car sales or something? But, but, but please listen to what Jesus says to you and to me this morning as as followers of his, as as investors in, in the family business. This is not my words. These are the words of Jesus. Mark them down. Think about them this week. Mark Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 37. If you truly want to follow me, you should at once completely disown your own life. And you must be willing to share my cross and experience it as your own as you continually surrender to my ways. For if you let your life go for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you will continually experience true life. But if you choose to keep your life for yourself, you will forfeit what you try to keep. For what use, what what gain is it if we get all the power, all the wealth of this world and everything it has to offer at the cost of your very own life? And what could be more valuable than your very own soul? Jesus says that a man who goes to war before he declares war stops and takes account of what he has, what he stands to gain, and what he could lose. A a man or a woman who builds a house carefully counts the cost so that it doesn't get partially built And funds run out, and there's a constant reminder, an edifice of failure that stands in the field, pointing to our foolishness. This is the kind of message that requires some thought. What am I willing to let go of? so that I can own, possess the treasure. What what line am I willing to cross so that it's no longer my life that counts, but Christ living in me? What is my response when Jesus says, Lift up your eyes and look out onto Marbank Drive 
and see the harvest that's ready and needs to be dealt with now before it spoils, before it dies. What do I do with his explicit last command on my life? Go everywhere to everyone and make disciples out of unbelieving people. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me?